Welcome to the Grad School Sucks podcast, or welcome back if you are returning. Today I've got a very cool episode with Dr. Elnaz Parvis. She also goes by Ellie. She is an assistant professor of communication studies, and we talk extensively about her journey from being an international grad student to becoming a professor. And this is a great episode with tons of takeaways for academics of all kinds, but particularly for international grad students. We talk about everything from how to be marketable on the job market to forming communities to experiencing tokenism, and I think there's going to be a lot of great takeaways for folks at home. So I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. Be sure to check out the description for links to Ellie's Instagram and her LinkedIn. And uh, if you are new here, be sure to subscribe. And if you like this episode, please uh, leave us a rating or review or a thumbs up on YouTube. See you all on the other side. Hey folks, thank you for tuning into the Grad School Sucks podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Matthew Carlson, and each week I'll be bringing you conversations that will help grad students like you survive grad school and thrive in a post-grad school career. If you end up enjoying today's podcast, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the description of this episode for links to everything that we talk about today. Without further ado, let's start the episode. Ellie, it is great to talk with you today. Uh, introducing Dr. Elnaz Parviz. Thank you so much for coming on the show and chatting with me. If you could just briefly introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, and where folks can find you online. Yeah, thank you for having me on this podcast. Um, I'm excited to be here and to have this opportunity to talk about some of my experiences. So I'm Elnaz Parviz, I go by Ellie. Um, I have a PhD in communication studies. Currently, I have an instructor of communication tenure track position at a college in the Northwest. Um, and um, I would love to connect with everyone on Instagram and on LinkedIn. Instagram and LinkedIn. And I will, um, I already follow you on Instagram and I will find you on LinkedIn and I will have links to both of those places in the description of this episode. Folks want to scroll down and click on those. So Ellie, let's start from the beginning. What drew you to grad school? So in 2014, um, my husband and I moved to the U.S. specifically to go to grad school. Um, so we're both international students. He is in engineering field. I'm a social scientist. Um, so our purpose, and we uh, had a gap since we uh, did our undergrads and he did his master's degree back home. Um, there was a gap when we were working uh, back home and then we moved here in order to do a graduate degree. Um, for me specifically, the reason was that I, uh, I taught English as a second language back home and I wanted teaching to be uh, my main job for the rest of my life. But then everything gets more competitive every year, everywhere in the world. Um, if you don't have those uh, graduate degrees and you want to remain a teacher, you're not very competitive in the job market. So I needed a graduate degree uh, to remain competitive. And I didn't want to remain an English teacher in the United States because um, English is not my first language, so I thought that put me at a disadvantage. So I wanted to study something that was similar enough um, for me to be able to make progress in, so I decided to study communication studies. Absolutely. That's awesome. 
Um, and so what was the process like of moving here and becoming a grad student and getting acclimated and all of that? So for both of us, it was a little different. He got his admission when we were back home into a PhD program for aerospace engineering. I moved here and then applied to uh, do my master's in communication studies uh, in the Midwest. Um, so we, what we needed were two uh, certificates, one to prove that we were um, compatible at English uh, and also uh, G GRE, that everybody oh, needs yeah. that, I think, yeah. Uh, regardless of their nationality. So we needed those. Um, something that international students also need is proof that they can pay for their lives here if they can't mm. get any funding. So we had to bring all of those financial proofs. Um, so that was the part of actually getting into a program. Um, when it comes to getting assistantships, it can be more difficult when you're not here in the U.S. Uh, mm. because programs... Uh, they need to know who they're giving assistantships to and whether those people will be able to do the job, whether it's a teaching assistantship or a graduate, like research assistantship. Uh, for me, it was an advantage because I was here. So I was able to get an assistantship three months into the program, which really helped financially nice. and also helped acclimate me into the, uh, you know, the professional um, world here. Yeah. Um, so for graduate students, as it was for the both of us, um, you're navigating a new education system, a new cultural system, and a new network. And that is not easy because graduate school is difficult for even students who are from uh, the country where they're doing the degree. Uh, but it's even more difficult for internationals because of those three reasons. When you think about the education system, a lot of international students may come from education systems that did not train them for this system. Mm. Um, let's say everything being in English, um, the way that you have to use those, um, references, AP. So I had no idea what APA was until the day I started my master's program. Um, and there isn't specific training for master's degree students to not in every university, there isn't any training program to teach them. Here is how you, uh, like format here is what you do. Um, some programs may include like professional days and trainings like it, they did in my uh, PhD program, but not in my master's program. So that put me at a disadvantage because there were a lot of details that my classmates knew that I didn't. So yeah. I had to spend two or three times um, as much time doing the assignments, figuring out how everything needed to look like uh, in order to meet the requirements. Man. Were there any... Um resources or any like tools that helped that that acclimation process or the the extra work that you had to do so there were some sites that were introduced to us like um the purdue website for all of those apa resources that was something that i kept going back to when i was doing my um, ma and that really helped. Then in my PhD program, we had professional days, I think once a month when we could work on. So we uh, brainstormed and we came up with topics that we needed to talk about. Um, and some resources, some um, like professionals came to help us um, navigate any of the sites or resources yeah. that were available. But the problem with that is, as an international student, like I said, it's a new cultural system as well. Mm -hmm. 
so not all of us are comfortable speaking up when we don't know something. Uh, that imposter syndrome that everybody may face is a little maybe bigger for international students because you're not only in a program that is at a higher level, but also you're not even in your own environment. You're in a different environment. You're sitting by people who uh, got their education here in the system their entire life. Yeah. So that thought is with you every second of every day that um, maybe I shouldn't even be here because I don't know any of these things and I'm not brave enough or I'm not comfortable enough to speak up and say that I don't know these things. So you navigate a part of those, but a part of them, maybe you never ask. Mm. And the institutions don't, they don't know what you don't know. Also, you don't know what you don't know in the beginning. So putting that responsibility on international students to go ask for what they need or figure out uh, what they need, it's a little bit of too much responsibility because institutions, they bring in international students. I think it's their job to um, do enough research and collect enough data to know what international students need and provide those resources. Yeah. Yeah, man. So the things that you're saying are really deepening, um, I guess, my view of the, the different challenges that international students face. When I was a grad student, the only thing that I really, whenever I would work with some of the international students in my lab, the only thing that I ever really registered was the language difference, like having to speak uh, in a second language and also having to write like professional academic style writing in a second language. The idea of doing that exhausted me. And my only frame of reference was Spanish, which I took a couple years in high school and then used here and there. Um, I could I could never write a paper in Spanish, um, but it makes so much sense that there's so many more layers than that, like the culture, and then um, maybe not feeling comfortable speaking up and asking for the resources and not knowing what you don't know. Um, that makes so much sense to me. What would you What would you say to any international grad student listeners right now who maybe? aren't speaking up or need something or don't know what they don't know? Um, so one strategy that really helped me, and I kind of had to use that strategy, um, is that a lot of international students, they build a network within their own communities. So a lot of them, because it's easier to speak in your own language or mm -hmm. speak to people who have very... Uh, similar shared experiences with you. So they build networks with people from their own uh, country. Um, and while that is really helpful because of those shared experiences, if you don't emerge yourself in the host community, if you don't talk to the people from the host, and it's not easy, they don't always let you in, especially if you, um, if speaking English is not very comfortable for you or um, is not very easy for others to understand when you speak it. Uh, they may not let you in, which is the sad part of building a network that includes people from the host community. Unless you speak to people who grew up in this education system and you go to study groups with them, work with them, you're not going to know what skills they have and what kind of training they receive that you don't um, like have all of those skills. So you don't know what to go look for or what to train yourself at. 
I had to uh, emerge myself in the community because um, in communication studies, there weren't any other um, Iranians like me. Mm. Um, and in the university where I was, there weren't many social scientists who were from Iran. Most people from my country, they study engineering mm. or medical sciences. So there weren't people like me who studied my major. So I, because I didn't have those shared experiences, I had to work with um, Americans. And it really helped me. And I was lucky because um, the cohort that I uh, was with, they did let me in and they were inclusive. But I, I have heard that that doesn't happen to everyone. Uh, yeah. um, so working with them made me realize the things that I didn't know. Um, and we ex they um, helped me with find accessing some resources. And I was able to teach myself some of the things that I was missing. So study groups with people from not from your own background, yeah. from other educational backgrounds can really help. Also, universities a lot of times have resources that they don't advertise uh, that much. Uh, so like writing groups, like writing labs, um, all of those can be excellent resources for international students. Again, not everyone is comfortable to go and benefit from those resources because international students may already feel that they are lesser than because yeah. of the language differences, because of that stronger imposter syndrome. So going to a writing lab and telling, hey, I'm a PhD student and I don't know how to write or I don't know how to format this paper, they may not be comfortable with that. And that's, that's a valid feeling. Um, yeah. But sometimes you have to, put, if you want to succeed, you have to push yourself. Uh, you're already here, you're out of your comfort zone. There are things that you have to do if you want to, um, be a compatible candidate in the job market, like a competitive candidate. Yeah. Yeah. That, that phrase out of your comfort zone that, uh, that I feel like that really kind of epitomizes at least from my frame of reference, what you're talking about, because not only are you not in your home country, you're in a different culture. Um, you're in a really unique part of a different culture and to be able to, compete in a crazy competitive academic job market, you have to put yourself further out of your comfort zone. Um, did you ever feel in your grad experience that you um, didn't have to live outside your comfort zone regularly? Or was it always kind of that way? Um, honestly, it was all, I was always out of my comfort yeah. zone. <laughs> yeah. Because everything you do is in a different language, different system. So um, basically, who you were and what you knew, I don't want to say it doesn't mean anything here, but it doesn't mean the same thing that it meant back home. Mm. So your identity, your skills, everything that you acquired uh, in your life, they, they're they bring a different kind of value. Um, mm. You can't always go back to those experiences. So you're out of your comfort zone. You're rebuilding your identity. You're rebuilding your skills. You are emerging yourself in a new culture, building a network, hopefully with uh, enough people from diverse backgrounds that can help you when you're in the job market. So every step of the way, it is kind of out of your comfort zone. Yeah. 
But I do know international students that, unfortunately, like I said, they remain within their own communities because it's a lot more comfortable. And I would honestly not recommend that um, mm. if the goal is to get a job with your degree in the community where you receive that education. I think you should build a larger network uh, that is inclusive of other backgrounds than your own. Yeah, that, that's, it sounds tough, but it makes sense. Um, so in addition to networking with people who are from like the, the, the host country, what other things did you do that you think helped you get a faculty position after you graduated? Um, so it really depends on the person's personality, but I was comfortable reaching out to different community organizations and getting involved with them. And through those involvements, I got some experiences that um, I was able to put on my CV and um, I was able to promote myself using those uh, hmm. connections and experiences. But also I didn't hold myself back. So if there was an opportunity for me to uh, do any kind of work relevant to what I was hoping to do later. So if there were any programs when I could be a guest speaker or uh, when I could teach maybe a one-hour session, I really reached out and I didn't wait for someone to come after me and ask me to uh, be a part of their program. I went after them. Um, and that is what I tell all of, my, uh, all of the people that I mentor you shouldn't wait for people to come after you. If you want something, ask. This is actually the second day that um, we got here in 2014. Like I think the second day we went out to an event and someone told me this sentence and I think it's been um, one of the most valuable lessons in my life. If you want something, ask for it. Mm. And it is the same in your academic career. It's the same in your professional career. If you want something, ask. The worst thing that can happen is that people tell you no, and that's okay. At least you tried. So any small opportunities that you get to add a line to your CV that is relevant to your professional goals, go after it, even if it's just one hour. Uh, I think that's really helped me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Were there any experiences that you had as a grad student that stand out to you as foundational to becoming a professor after you graduated? Um, so I had a TA position uh, the entire time during my master's degree and PhD. And that really helped because that gave me like six years uh, of teaching experience here in the mm -hmm. U.S., most of those courses, I was the instructor of record. I think there was only one course where I was not the instructor of record. I was assisting someone. Um, so if people can get any teaching experience, that can really add uh, value to their portfolio um, if they are looking for an academic job. Um, then I also got involved in a couple of research projects with professors. I think that brought a lot of value uh, to my portfolio and there I had the opportunity to apply to be the assistant to introductory communication course mm. for a couple of years and that was more of an administrative job I got a um, course release for that 
Um, so I made sure that I had a diverse um, kind of uh, diverse experiences when it came to academia. So don't focus on one. If you have um, a research position, that's wonderful. It probably pays more in some universities. Um, but um, I would recommend that you try and get a variety of experiences that are relevant to academia, like teaching, like administrative work, uh, and all of those. That makes sense. Uh, so I'd like to maybe fast forward a little bit. What was it like to go on the academic job market? Let me see, I have some notes. Um, so the first challenge that international students might uh, face, and I did, is managing the legal um, requirements for even being in the job market. Mm. Um, and that can be done through international student services, but it takes time. So it's important to be mindful of how much time you need to uh, receive all of those work permits and be able to start your job. So that is tricky to manage. Uh, so between the time that you start applying and the time that you um, apply for those, uh, for the legal paperwork, and if like when you get an offer and the date that you have to start the job, if your paperwork is not ready, that's going to be a challenge. So that is a timeline that you need to do a little bit of research on and, um, manage it still things can go wrong the timelines may not exactly um, align hmm. that is one challenge what else did i have here interview skills so when um so i'm gonna speak about my experience and my uh, husband's experience a little bit i was in communication studies so a lot of uh, my verbal and nonverbal communication skills uh, they improved in the programs that I was, he was in an engineering program. So um, not a lot of speaking, um, yeah. a lot of numbers and data. So it's a challenge for international students to um, be deemed as smart and as capable in their field if they can't express uh, what they're thinking, if they can't really effectively promote themselves. And that can happen because of language barriers. It can happen because of the nonverbals that they um, are used to. What else do I have? Um, and because of um, all of those behaviors that might be acceptable in one culture and not in another. So yes, we can go to interview training sessions. Um, the more uh, people you practice with, it can really help. So one strategy that helped me with interviews was uh, I talked to three of my professors and they helped me prepare. Uh, they practiced with me the questions that they thought I should prepare for and I should have uh, ready to go responses for. So um, don't practice with only your friends. Don't only go to training sessions for interviews, but also practice with different professors who, who are um, at a different stage in their career. So I practiced with someone who was new faculty. I practiced with someone who was my advisor and someone who was not so new faculty, but someone from a diverse background like me. Um, and I also asked a couple of other faculties experiences um, about interviews. So that really helped me. And I think for people in different fields, if you have the opportunity to find people that are already in that field, 
and talk to them about their interview experiences and see if they can practice with you. That can really help uh, manage the challenges of uh, that international students might feel uh, they're facing in interviews. I don't know if I answered your question. No, absolutely. I, I have some specific questions about the job market, if yeah. that's okay. If you don't yeah. mind sharing these numbers. Yeah. How many jobs did you apply to? Do you remember? I do. So um, I hope this is not discouraging. For me. I uh, applied for one faculty job in 2020, which was starting in 21. And um, I was done with my comprehensive exams. So I was ABD. Um, and the job call said that you can apply if you're ABD, if you think you're going to have the degree by uh, the time that the job starts. I only apply, I wasn't ready to apply for any jobs. I only applied because one of these people I mentioned that I practiced interviews with, uh, she saw the call and she thought I would be a very good fit. So she sent it to me and I immediately uh, asked her if she would be comfortable writing a recommendation for me. And she said, yes. So I only applied because I had already asked her and I was too embarrassed not to apply because I, um, and I got an, um, I thought, Best case scenario, I will get an interview and that'll be practice. Um, but surprisingly, I got the job. It was not a mm -hmm. research job. It was a four-year university that also had a master's program uh, in communication studies. I had to relocate for that. So I got the job. It didn't pay nearly. So it paid as much as a postdoc. Oh, so okay. very little money. Yeah. I, I can share with you how much if... Sure. So the university was in the Midwest, uh, and what they offered me was 55000 which yeah. was what my husband made when he did a postdoc for one year. Yeah. Um, and the requirement was that I teach a three, four course load. Uh, okay. So, Busy. yeah. Busy. Yeah. Uh, That's so amazing. You got the one job you applied to. It was gratifying. Then... Uh, I didn't finish my, uh, well, when they offered me the job, I told them that I may not finish by the time that I have to start the job and they agreed. So that was fine. In my first year, I was at the National Communication Association. Um, one of the, I think a chair of a department that was looking for professors, they um, were at my presentation. They came to me and told me about an opportunity and told me to apply. And I was excited. Well, I was already feeling great. I got the first job that I applied to, and I thought I was going to get that second job. Um, I applied. I didn't get that job. Um, and I was kind of 85% sure that I was going to get it. Oh, yeah. So I didn't get that one. Then um, I think I applied for another job, which was also a teaching job. Uh, I didn't get that one. And then I got this job. So four total uh, applications, all of them for academic positions. One of them was a, an R1 university. Uh, the others were all teaching positions. So two out of four. I feel like that that's a great track record. Um, but I understand this doesn't happen for everyone. Um, I think my husband had to apply for hundreds of jobs yeah. because he was applying to get a job in, in the industry. So for him, it was a little bit more difficult. Uh, yeah. I just spoke with, uh, I think I just mentioned this earlier in our conversation. I, earlier today, I was interviewing another professor 
and he applied for 85 jobs and got one job offer. And I feel like that's pretty close to average. Yeah. Um, but yeah, whether academia or industry. I think that's normal. Now, one thing that I want to bring up as we talk about this is um, the tokenism that is going on in a lot of institutions, yeah. especially higher education um, institutions. So um, this is not something I like to talk about, but I have a feeling that me being from a different country and having all of that. So a lot of factors played a role in the fact that I got two jobs out of four. One of those factors was that I came from a diverse background, mm. um, which again is not easy for me to um, admit. It worked to my advantage, but um, I would like to think that I, when you get a job, it's because you're highly qualified. Absolutely. Not because of the tokenism going on, because they want to advertise, hey, we brought in this like diverse faculty member. and Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that is a part of it. Yeah. And I, you know, I am by no means an expert in hiring and diversity or anything like that, but I, I, from what I've seen, I hear from people that it can cut both ways. Um, I, I saw on LinkedIn, someone did a study where they made different versions of their resume. And in one, they had like a ethnic non- American sounding name in another one they had an American sounding name and then they had something else and it was they had pretty big differences in the kinds of callback they were receiving and clearly there was a preference for the more American sounding name and um yeah I I, I don't have any uh I guess there's no takeaway from me on that but yeah so the reason I mentioned that is that oops sorry for some um, academic institutions, they uh, there's a percentage of diverse faculty that they have to hire. Mm -hmm. um, so I think maybe that is something to um, consider as you're applying to jobs. Some of the jobs are advertised as um, exactly as that, that we're looking yeah. for someone with a diverse background or someone that can bring in new insights. And those might be the jobs uh, in which you have higher chances of chances of getting hired. Uh, Absolutely. And honestly, I, I feel like in the super competitive academic job market, any advantage is a yeah. is a helpful advantage. Um, speaking of your of your job, your current role now, is it fully teaching? Is it part teaching and research? It's fully teaching. No. Yes, it's a college, so it's fully teaching. The requirement is, um, so it's on quarter system, not semester. So there are three quarters, and I'm required to teach three courses each quarter. Um, research is not a requirement. The institution still provides some support um, for faculty that want to research, like funding for conferences and data collection and softwares and that, um, but it's not a requirement of getting your tenure. Very cool. Uh, if you don't mind sharing, do you want to stay like 100% teaching or maybe in the future? Have you thought about going to like a part research, part teaching professor job? Uh, to be honest, I've thought about all 
kinds of paths. So um, obviously, with my research skills, if I get an industry job, I'd probably be making two, three times more than um, what I make as faculty. Yeah. So I have thought about that and the area where we are, there are a lot of tech companies. Um, so one job that peop- social scientists with research skills, qualitative and quantitative, they can apply for is UX researcher. Mm. Um, it's a very, I think, popular kind of job. All uh, companies are uh, hiring for UX researchers. Now, I don't know the chances of getting hired for that position for me, but I do know that a lot of my col- my classmates they have gotten jobs as UX researchers. So I've thought about a job that is in industry, uh, fully researched, but I also love teaching. It's my passion. Um, For me, it's important to stay in this area for family reasons. Uh, So if there are positions that include teaching and research and pay well, um, I'm not opposed to applying. But one thing that uh, I experienced in my previous job and this current job that I have, my current job pays more because of the area uh, Mm. that we live in now. But one difference is that in a more traditional style university, there are a lot of um, other responsibilities that are unpaid. So the service Mm. responsibilities are much higher. Yeah. Yeah. So if I go to like an R1 university, that anxiety to uh, meet the research requirements every year, that's going to be there. Um, the requirements for service is going to be there. And I do have to do service here too, but it's a smaller college. So it's not as much. And in a larger university, you probably don't have as much um, autonomy over what courses you teach every semester. You have to teach what the department needs. Uh, but here at this college, a lot of the courses that are offered are like, I think there are like 10 or there are 12 total courses that are offered, but several of each. So you get to select the modality, whether you want to teach online or in person, you get to select what courses. Um, so you have all of that, uh, all of the, that choice. which you probably wouldn't have in a larger university where you're competing with faculty who have been there and have been publishing for like 20 years. And uh, yeah. Yeah, that's fun. Um, So (laughs) I have a a question that kind of goes back to tokenism. I've heard people talk about that faculty with diverse backgrounds can often find themselves with extra service service positions have you have you experienced that um so yes especially in my previous job and i didn't dislike that because it was my first year and i really wanted to be involved in everything and um put my name out there and get to know everyone but yes because you're one of the few um with your experiences, mm-hmm. a lot of the uh, DEI committees may want you to be involved. A lot of the students who are doing work related to DEI may want you to may want your help and your advice. Um, and especially if you are new faculty, saying no is going to be difficult. Yeah. So you may feel not forced to, but 
I mean, you want to be involved, but also it's a lot of work uh, that is unpaid. Uh, yeah. Was it, did did they ever was there ever a negotiation of like maybe you could get a course release in exchange or was that maybe probably not something they offered of course. Um. No, yeah. not something that was offered. Yeah. Yeah. Because you you don't get course releases for service. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I've. Uh, I've heard a number of stories about that and it it um it makes sense and it it does seem to be kind of a way that uh while diversity is celebrated there's also like inequalities that yeah. are continuing. Yeah. And one other thing is that when you are a faculty of color or someone from a diverse background um, I don't know if it's my feeling or if that's what's really going on, but you're always kind of, um, I don't want to say it with these words. Um, you sound different. Mm -hmm. You may not be perceived as smart as your other colleagues. Yeah. Uh, your experiences are different. Again, as even when you get a job, because of those different experiences, there is a lot that you're not going to know. Um, especially if you are new in a department in which everyone has been there for quite a while. So it's intimidating to go to um, faculty who are more senior um, and ask them, hey, what's going on? Yeah. You already sound different. There's a lot you don't know. Um, there's the gender component. Um, so all of those may play a role in you feeling that you are being deemed as lesser than everybody else. Yeah. That's a challenge. Yeah. Do you have any, so I'm thinking there's probably a handful of listeners who are new faculty who come from a diverse background. Do you have any advice for folks who are starting their first job who may be confronting some of these things? Um, well, I'm still kind of new, <laughs> so, sure. um, as long as you don't voice what you think, um, you, your diverse background can sometimes put you at a disadvantage, but also it can give you insights that others really don't have. Yeah. Um, it's challenging to speak up in a big meeting with people who have been there for a while and they all sound uh, the way they should sound um, within the system and you're the only one who sounds different and mm. comes from a different background. As long as you don't speak up, um, you won't become a part of the system. Mm. So if you have insights, gather all your courage and share. Yeah. Um, especially in those bigger meetings, you need to be visible and you need to be heard before you are taken seriously. And it's not easy. I'm just saying this a lot of times. I've had thoughts, but I've kept them to myself because um, a lot of meetings also now are on Zoom. So it's even more difficult to, you know, gather yourself and use yeah. those emojis and speak up. Um, but it's something that you have to do if you want to stay within that system. Um, and also find your allies. Um, there's always going to be someone or a group of um, colleagues that are more supportive, 
for a variety of reasons. It could be that they have worked with people like you, or they might themselves be from diverse backgrounds, or they might be new faculty also looking for collaboration opportunities. So find your allies and um, build a stronger network. Mm. Because if you're like, uh, you're new and you're the only one like you and you don't build stronger workplace relationships, it's going to be also more difficult to speak up or to be included in different opportunities. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, let me think. Have we covered everything that you wanted to, to talk about today? Let me take a look. One thing that I had on my notes for being in the job market was on a lot of forms, um, ethnicity is mentioned, um, but like my own, I don't consider myself white. I know with a lot of uh, like senses and uh, census companies, um, I'm from Iran. Mm. And Middle Easterns are um, considered white. I don't consider myself white. So a lot of forms may not include your ethnicity and race. Um, so you have to, you're forced to select white. And that might put you at an advantage or at a disadvantage. And I think those forms can say a lot about the company you're about to get into. So if the company does not have an inclusive culture, um, I know sometimes we're desperate to get jobs regardless of what company we're getting into and later sure. we face toxic workplace environments. Um, but be careful when you're filling out those forms. Um, think about the forms more critically. Uh, the actual form says a lot about the inclusivity of that workplace environment than an inclusive a DEI statement on their website. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that feels so insightful. So before we start wrapping up, do you have any, any last uh, tips or pieces of advice for newer international grad students or postdocs or faculty? Um, well, um, it's not easy to finish a graduate degree in a different system, different culture, different language. It's even more difficult to find a job that you like and that is relevant to your education. But a lot of people have done this before you. So it's mm -hmm. possible. Don't get discouraged if you apply for hundreds or even thousands of jobs, I've heard, um, and you don't even get an interview. Work on your skills. Work on your network. I know these are words that everybody says, but really work on them. Be a little bit braver, reach out to people, build a stronger network, hire mentors if you have to, um, like hire coaches if you have to. I know mentors mm -hmm. you don't have to pay. So find mentors, find coaches, work on your CVs and work on your interview skills. Um, again, a lot of people have done this and you can do that too. Uh, it just may take work and time. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Well, Ellie, um, so folks who want to follow along in their journey, they can follow on Instagram. They can find you on LinkedIn. Yeah. Okay. Then I'll, again, I'll have those in the description of this episode. So folks can click there. Um, what is one thing that you think all grad students should do or consider doing before they're done with grad school? Could be something fun. Could be something professional. 
Um, professional, definitely go to a conference. I know a lot of people already do, um, but I know people that don't because of those financial restrictions. Yeah. Uh, so definitely go to a conference and if you can go every year if uh, your institution supports that for fun um, I was lucky to have a great cohort so we planned a lot of cohort activities I know not every program is built in a way that allows people to feel like a group mm. um, but you can always be the person that creates that group within your Absolutely. program so you can always um, create Facebook events or, and it's okay if people don't all want to go, mm. but having those activities with your cohort, those are memories that you're going to cherish for the rest of your life. Like it could be as small as going for coffee or trying some new activities, sport, something. Uh, you don't have to do that every year. Oh, one thing that we did in my cohort was um, the department had uh, an award ceremony, but not everybody got an award. So we were a close-knit cohort, kind of. We were lucky that we all liked each other. And <laughs> so we had our own award ceremony, and we printed these certificates, and we gave, like, um, we did a survey before um, and selected people for a title, like um, the kindest or um, the funniest or, yeah. So we had our own award ceremony for three years before COVID. So everybody got an award. And that was something that um, I think all of us will appreciate it and uh, think of as a good memory. So build a stronger relationship with your cohorts. Absolutely. I love that. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for coming on the show and chatting with me. I cannot wait to share this with, uh, with all the listeners. I appreciate it. Thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. I look forward to talking with you in the future. Yeah, thanks. Folks, thank you for tuning into the Grad School Sucks podcast. I hope you got a lot out of our episode today. If you did, please consider leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the description of this episode for links to everything that we covered today. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great episode next week. See y'all next time.